welcome back to this week's episode of Decoded, where we explore topics that's relevant to the next generation of developers. Again, my name is Sydney Lai, and the show is brought to you by OutSystems. OutSystems is a dev tool. It is a full-on platform where you can build mission-critical enterprise software. If you've got two weeks and you want to learn a new skill set and you're already a developer, even if you're a junior dev, feel free to sign up for this bootcamp. It's free. They teach you reactive web, mobile, and what you really, really learn is how to build fast and approach tech and development tools in a whole new perspective. With that being said, I'm really excited to jump into this week's episode. Philip Thomas, you know what? I'll just, let's go in. We'll say hi. All right. And here we have today is Philip Thomas. Wow. So I met this guy a few years ago in San Francisco, and it's so great to see him back here now as the vice president of product and engineering at Zyper. Prior to his role at Zyper, he was one of the founders and developers at Moonlight, which was recently acquired by pull request. So I'm really excited to see where his developer journey has brought him into the role of a founder, an entrepreneur, having an awesome exit, and then uh, continuing to build awesome products in the developer community space. Um, With that being said, uh, Phil, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Sydney. Yeah, absolutely. You've had a pretty crazy background. It's been really fun just watching you go from being a meetup organizer, really driving those activities for the developer community and seeing how far you've come. I'm curious, like, how did you get into tech? What was, was there a catalyst? Where was the obsession? How, what's the story? Yeah, the short story is when I went to college, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And then I started doing lab work and learning biology and like all this pipetting and Western blots and all this stuff and realized that I really didn't enjoy it. I wasn't like super excited or as excited as other people. And just the nature of science is, you know, I would be running an experiment for weeks and then would realize that a mistake from three weeks ago, I had just detected that day and I had just wasted weeks of work. And I just didn't do well with that feedback loop. And then I was spending a summer at our lab and decided to work with the bioinformaticist there. And she kind of plopped down three books on programming, like a PHP book, a MySQL book, and like a CSS book. And I spent that summer building a gene database. And I'd done programming before that, but it was more in like the engineering context, like solving math problems, like analyzing data. I didn't think of it as like really building a product. And I just like really loved that that summer and decided not to go to medical school and, you know, get really (laughs) deep in tech and started building a ton of experiments on the side, a food truck app, like a dating rejection site, and then found myself in Silicon Valley after graduation. Wow. So, okay. So you really just fell down the rabbit hole. And do you remember your first computer or, or like your first gadget or anything like that? Yeah, it was like a Dell Inspiron 2350 or something. Amazing. What was what was the operating system of that? It was, I think it was XP. But oh, wow. I oh, oh, remember wow. okay. loading Ubuntu onto it for my grandparents because it was the fastest operating system. When the computer was old, it was like my grandfather oh my God, did his banking were, on Ubuntu. Yeah, you were on the <laughs> Linux game for, for some time. But it wasn't... So even with that first memory of your computer, it wasn't really until you were in school studying maybe biology or other types of sciences that it really started to fall in place for you. Is that what had happened? Programming 
is a tool in a lot of engineering and sciences. So I ended up graduating with majors in systems engineering and physics. And a lot of people just end up expressing their work in code, but it's not necessarily like building products. And it really took until like sophomore year of college that I kind of made that transition to thinking of code as a way to build products and not just like solve math problems. Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. And I mean, so it sounds like you did various different types of experiments, like the was it some kind of rejecting dating kind of I, I don't know, <laughs> something that you had said. I, I, It's like, so then what kind of projects do you typically like to build? What kind of draws you? Yeah, I think what really draws me is just like solving problems and like having fun. I'm really inspired by this developer who was on Moonlight named Max Hawkins. He's gone off and started this company that connects you to random people for conversations called dialup.com. And it's definitely expanded a ton during COVID. But he's really like an artist at heart. And like we've met a couple of times. And I just, I really like that code doesn't necessarily have to be something that's constantly for building a business. Like to really love the day-to-day and to get into it, like you really need to bring a whimsical attitude and, you know, sometimes just build things for fun. I think that's really where starting coding should be is like building things for fun so that you really enjoy it and can see user value and can actually get things into the hands of people. So I built little projects like that. I built one during COVID that ended up actually getting acquired, which was a lot of fun to help people find restaurants that were still open for takeout during COVID. Wait, so this was your second acquisition, basically? Yeah, second acquisition of the year. (laughs) That's sick. Oh my God, that's amazing. That's awesome. So then I guess, how did you start? I mean, may it be this acquisition, the previous acquisition, but like, how did you transition or grow yourself as a developer into something that more of a founder role? Or what was what was this transition like for you? Yeah. When you start programming, it's great to have an idea in mind and like be delivering user value, but it's also really valuable to go into a bigger company. So out of college, I joined OpenDNS. The founder, David, was an alum of my university, which is how I met him. And I definitely was very junior, not a very good programmer, and learned so much there. And that experience of working with other people who were really smart and driven and had experience was amazing for learning. Like that really took me from being able to scrap together a prototype to understanding more of the deep internals and how to make technical decisions and how to level up those programming skills. So I think there's a lot of value to joining a bigger company, even if you want to be working on products, because you really understand that whole process. You understand the roles of product, of design, of engineering. But in terms of actually moving forward with starting a first company, which was called StaffJoy, that started as a side project, OpenDNS. My senior project at college was a workforce management algorithm for smaller teams, kind of inspired by sitting in coffee shops and kind of seeing that they operated very differently than Starbucks did. And so that's kind of where I started hacking on the side with that algorithm after college, got really inspired by the Julia programming language, which is much more mathematical, but has some really great bindings for optimization mathematics, which is why I got interested. And around that time, the whole on-demand trend of startups was happening. So there were on-demand apps for cookie yeah. delivery, for food delivery, for this is like 2016, packages, 20... yes, clothing, <laughs> yeah. all that stuff. And so there were these hyperscaling workforces around me that I ended up meeting that wanted to use that algorithm. That company started as spreadsheets over email. People would email me spreadsheets. I'd run it through the algorithm, send them back spreadsheets of shifts. 
And you know, the whole idea was trying to match when people were working with when the business needed them. And for super spiky demands like food delivery, the algorithm really shined. And so ended up moving full-time on that. OpenDNS got acquired. And so it was a great time to kind of transition out. And the founder was really excited and backed us in that company. We got into Y Combinator's fellowship program and went down to Mountain View for a few weeks working with them. And that's really where the company started. But the company wasn't us necessarily saying, I'm going to stop and start a company right now. It really was user-driven. And the first version of the product, the first thing people paid for was spreadsheets over email. And like, that's how you know you're solving a problem is if people will use some super janky solution. Yeah, that's that's incredible. I actually forgot about that chapter in your life. And this is, I'd say this is right before Moonlight. Is that right? Yeah. So Moonlight was kind of born out of the needs we had at StaffJoy. StaffJoy raised a few rounds of funding and we just did a really bad job at hiring. I was also super unhappy with just going into an office every day. I just much preferred like sitting in a coffee shop for at least some time. And San Francisco was definitely changing. Rent prices were going up. It was a very homogenous culture. And so I got really interested in the problem of hiring and what the future of work was. And that's kind of where Moonlight started. Wow, that's, I mean, that's really relevant to today, right? Yeah. And so tell me a little bit more about what do you think, as you were building Moonlight, like what was some of the bigger lessons that you've learned, especially during your first startup, you're saying like, hey, hiring didn't come as naturally to me. You know, the second time around, was that the same thing? Yeah, so Moonlight started again as a no-code prototype put up a landing page in Squarespace and staffed was spreadsheets over email. This was just email-based prototypes and just built everything with tools like Zapier and third-party invoicing tools and kept track of people's hours and spreadsheets, kept track of people who wanted to work on the site. So for context, Moonlight is a professional network for software developers. It helps developers find part-time and full-time work. The idea there is really remote contract to hire. We really strongly believed that contract to hire was the future of remote work, that instead of coming in for a whiteboard interview, you would just work together for a short period of time. If it worked, you'd keep working together. If not, then you would move on. And so some companies were using it for just staff augmentation. Some people were using it to build full-time teams. And we worked with companies ranging from you know super small startups all the way up to some companies that are publicly traded. So that experience took three years. We ran no-code prototypes and slowly started building out the application. You know, at first it was just type form on the homepage, then it was log in to access the type form, then it was log in, go through a couple of screens, and then there were more type forms. Type form being a really great form tool that you can use for kind of building no-code prototypes. It's a really great tool that integrates well with Zapier. And Zapier is kind of just like logic as a service. You know, if you want to trigger an email or a text message when someone fills out a form, Zapier is where you want to go, an amazing tool. And so Moonlight slowly built up. And after two years of growing the company, we had passed over $10,000 in monthly recurring revenue. We're doing tens of thousands of dollars per month in gross merchandise Valium and ended up raising a venture capital round then, which fueled the company's growth and led to an acquisition earlier this year. Yeah, that's, well, again, congratulations on the second and then the third, right? So, I mean, I think what's been really impressive as you're sharing this journey of how you built Moonlight and even even StaffJoy is this approach as a developer, even building small, right, with no code. I think it's very, I don't know if it's a Silicon Valley mentality or if it's a very lean, like a lean methodology approach, but I think what's really 
interesting is almost the counterintuitive nature of a developer, which is like, hey, instead of making this line by line, let me try this first. And then perhaps I need to make it line by line. So, you know, then I'm curious, like, what do you think were either some of the strengths or I don't know, maybe the weaknesses of going from a developer into a founder? What do you think translates or maybe what doesn't? Because your approach, yes, almost almost seems counterintuitive, right? Yeah. One of the most important lessons to learn in like building a company is that your solution matters so much less than the user's problem. Like users will use a completely broken tool if it's actually solving a problem for them. The kind of problem that you can fall into if you know how to build something that's really great is spending years kind of building this perfect idea, not releasing it until it is, you know, doing everything you want it to do. That's not the right way to launch a product because the danger is you spend two years working on it, then you show it to someone and they don't like what you built. And so we talked a lot in Moonlight internally with the team about you know, the danger isn't really moving too slowly, it's moving in the wrong direction. Because if you're moving too slowly, that's something you can fix. But if you're moving in the wrong direction, then it's really hard to course correct and you end up with bloat and really completely wasted time. Yeah, that's, that's an incredibly good point. And I think I would say that oftentimes as developers, we like to just build the solution. We like to make the code, see if it works. And yeah, you know, admittedly so. Sometimes we do forget to what is the user pain point. So the way you approach the solution, again, is sometimes counterintuitive to let's just uh, build this from scratch, from code, right? And so, so as you mentioned, as Moonlight gets acquired, what was what made, let's say, pull requests a good technical partner, or why was this a good strategic technical move? What's you know, what's the vision? What was the vision behind that, as an example? Yeah, I mean, pull request is a great company. They help teams get really high quality review of code. They founded two years ago, went through Y Combinator, got funded by Google's Gradient Fund. And they're under the hood, a big developer marketplace, just like Moonlight. Under the hood, they're very similar places where we're having short contract-based work. And the pull request team is just, you know, operationally really excellent. And this was a great brand extension for them. So Moonlight is continuing to run, continuing to do great work. I think the numbers are actually, you know, even better than when we were operating it. And so pull request is a really great fit there in terms of getting deeper into the stack, more vertically integrated, where they were reviewing code for a variety of companies, making sure that you're not shipping code vulnerabilities to production, that you're not shipping inefficient code, that you're following best practices. And now they can go deeper. And if you need help actually writing that code, it can uh, factor in there. And so we had a lot of customers for Moonlight that would hire developers on Moonlight and then use pull requests to verify that the code was you know, good before shipping it to production. Oh, wow. So this vertical integration as well as brand extension absolutely makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And so as you both address the developer market, in your perspective, is there a difference when you're serving a very specific community of developers versus when you're talking about the user pain point of just, I don't know, like just general consumers or something like that, right? Yeah. So you're talking about selling a product to developers versus others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your, what's your experience on that? Yeah, I think one thing that is a useful tool to use, not always applicable when you're a developer building a company, is imagining that all the code you're building is just completely commoditized and someone else should do it. That's like a useful bar. That like, it doesn't really matter how efficient it is, how pretty it is, how perfect it works. 
because the real goal there is solving that user's problem and they'll use something that's broken. And you know, whether you use MySQL or Postgres really doesn't matter. Like the danger is that no one wants what you're building. The danger is not that it won't right, scale. Right. Oh my God. I think an exception to that is when you're building a product for developers. You know, if you're looking at Stripe, for instance, like having a really pretty API that works well and is quick is a huge part of Stripe's success. So if you're in the developer tools market, that is kind of where building the product really well on the developer side matters. And I'm not saying that you should always think of code as commoditized, but as a technical founder, the danger is that the tool in your hand is code and you think of every problem as something that can be solved through code. But most of the time as a founder who's technical, those problems can be solved better by talking to users, by doing a no-code prototype. As a founder, you want to be leveraging your time and getting returns on your time. And if you're just writing code, you know, that does help the business, but it's way better returns on your time to teach someone the code base and have them be doing that work so that you can then go off and make sure you're actually solving that user's problem. Right. That's a really good point. I think that when, you know, I wonder how do you best check yourself, right? Because I think that if you have a strength, maybe it's again, programming, then it's like, all right, I'm just going to double down on this. Right. And so Phil, you're able to like, double check yourself to not fall into the trap of like, oh, I'm just going to code this into a solution. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. We had an advisor at StaffJoy who recommended as founder CEO to take multiple days per week that were explicitly no code. Like it started as one day, moved to two day, but like you're not allowed to touch the code. You're not allowed to look at GitHub, like spend the day talking to customers, doing pricing research, writing sales emails. And I think that's really valuable for founders to do if they're technical. Right, right. That's a good point. Because again, otherwise, to your point, you build something that no one really wants or needs. But then, okay, but then how, riddle me this, how did the shake weight, remember the shake weight, the thing that like you, you carry and then it vibrates and it's all this, how did that, as a product guy and a dev, how did that take off? Riddle me that, right? I think you've stumped me there. Right? I don't... <laughs> It's like, is it necessary? Is it needed? But I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's good marketing. So, oh, plot twist, plot twist for developers. It's, it's just maybe sometimes it's good marketing, but, yeah. man, but shake it's weight. a different business than software, <laughs> right? Like the reason Bill Gates is a billionaire is because he pioneered this business model and took it to kind of the edges at that time, which was there's an upfront cost to build the software, and then it costs you approximately zero dollars to add a new customer. And it can scale infinitely in terms of the number of customers. Just copying and pasting code. The CD costs a couple of cents and selling it for $100. And that is really what defines software businesses is $0 marginal costs and infinite scalability. And that is why that's so unique. And that's also why you have to kind of measure twice, cut once. Because with something like the ShakeWeight, you're selling something, maybe it's $20 and it costs you like $8 to manufacture, but your upfront costs are not that high. Like you can course correct, you can make new colors, that's fine. But with software, the reason it's so difficult and the reason why venture capital makes sense is because you have this huge cost up front before you can really start making money of building it. And the best example of that is Instagram. Like when Facebook bought Instagram for about a billion dollars, Instagram was making zero dollars, which means that they put a billion dollars into developing a product that was making no money yet. And it turned out to be a great purchase for Facebook, right? Because now Instagram is worth many multiples of what they paid. But that is like the thing to keep in mind as a software business is high upfront costs, but then $0 marginal costs is why you have to think in certain ways. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think Acumen is up there with Bill Gates now. So better watch out. <laughs> Learn the lesson the hard <laughs> way, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think to that point is what do you think is some of the lessons that you learned being a technical founder? I mean, you, you talked a little bit about this, but but more so even specifically going through the acquisition process, right? What was what was that experience and what do you think that has taught you for your next endeavors, maybe on the job or or on your own projects, whatever that may look like? Yeah. I mean, so many lessons. Some of them were big lessons for me. Some were relearning things that are I'd read multiple times. And I recommend rewatching and rereading startup advice books and blog posts and videos and things because it takes hearing things multiple times to really learn it and internalize it. And sometimes you watch these videos before you start a company and you're like, oh yeah, of course I would never do that. Why would I do that? And then you start the company and you repeat the mistake. Yeah. And then you go yeah. back and watch the video again and you're like, you know, I should have listened, but you knew it, right? But just, you know, that constant, that constant search for like improving what you're doing is really important. And that's why also taking non-technical days as a technical founder is so important because you sometimes start to feel like you're climbing this hill. And if you just work harder and harder and harder, eventually you'll climb up the hill. But that will, in this position, potentially lead to burnout or maybe you're pursuing the wrong solution. It's kind of like that feeling when you're trying to build something and you're just trying to figure out like, how do I get this bug solved? And you know, you spend until midnight and then you like go to sleep and you wake up the next morning. You're like, oh yeah, now I know how to do it. Building a company is just like that, where talking to customers and making sure that you're building what they want, that you're thinking about the problem can have these huge impacts on the business. And if you're really far behind, maybe you should stop and hire a contractor or a full-time person or raise some money. And that will maybe get you to your goals faster. Right. I mean, I think this lesson learned also comes from the perspective of you as a developer, right? As you as a very specific founder, a very specific developer. But I wonder how does this also apply with other developers? Should every developer become a founder? I think that that's a huge conversation, especially among millennials, especially among the concept of, you know, hey, I'm a developer. I can make something. Software rules the world. But yeah, I think what's what's really in my head is, does every developer make a good founder? What does, what doesn't? What is the path for a developer? Yeah. That's kind of a vague question, right? Yeah. You don't have to be a founder to be successful, right? Like the person I've worked with who has the most wealth was an early employee at a big company. Should you start a company? Like my founder friends are for the most part, my poorest friends, right? Like for the last few years of starting a company, you take a huge pay cut, right? And you have to start from zero. Whereas you can't invent the like button at a startup. You can only invent it at Facebook. And that comes from a, one of the startup school videos from YC, which is really great advice. Like you can make a big impact at a big organization and be compensated really well for it. And if you want to start a company and you can't get it out of your system, like definitely go for it. But note that you're not going to be doing the things you love as a developer while being a founder. And there are different kinds of businesses. There are lifestyle businesses. There are venture scale businesses. There are solo one-person businesses. Yeah, <laughs> which are all valid. Yeah. Each of them has different trajectories. But to make your business successful, you can't just think of it as, I'm going to go sit in a coffee shop for eight hours a day for the next few years and become a millionaire. That does happen. <laughs> but right. for the vast majority of businesses, it takes a lot of talking to customers. It takes hiring and managing people. And if you start a business, you need to be prepared to not be writing code anymore within a couple of years. You know, maybe you will, but your value to the company doesn't come from writing code. Your value to the company will come from 
managing people, from setting vision, from setting the standard of execution, from raising money. And so your coding abilities are not necessarily the long-term thing you'll be working on if you want to start a company. Mm, that's actually a really good point. I mean, even more specifically, then what do you what do you see as the difference as a non-technical founder and then a technical founder? Yeah. Yeah. And if you have a co-founder, that can definitely change, right? And so in general, in software careers as a developer, you have the individual contributor track and you have the manager track. If you're following the individual contributor track, that is, you know, engineer, senior engineer, lead engineer, principal engineer, member of the technical staff, which is more of like a professor type track where you will continue to write code, you will continue to think about code problems, and it's a very deep work focused job, right? So you're trying to protect your focus and spend as much of your eight hours per day as possible thinking about technical problems. But the other track is management, which is maybe engineer, lead engineer, engineering manager, VP of engineer, CTO. And that tends to be very different in how you spend your time because your job is not about you. Your job is about the team. And so you end up spending more time doing weekly one-on-ones with your team and talking to other people within the company and doing performance reviews and things. And so it's not necessarily a better thing to go be a manager for every person. Like if you want to be heads down coding, that is a completely valid career track in Silicon Valley. It's really built out and there are ways to do that. So when you're starting a company, that's something to definitely talk about with a co-founder, right? Like, do you want to spend your time heads down working or do you want to spend your time context switching? And I think that for a lot of developers, they've trained their whole careers to be deep work focused. Great book by Cal Newport. Like that's really how you get the most done while coding. But when you're in a broader organization, you don't get the most work done by being in a deep work state. When you're managing people, you have to work on their schedule. You have to empower them. You have to be context switching. There's ways you can promote deep work as a manager, but that's not your primary focus. If you get zero deep work done and your team is really happy and doing great things, that's you know a successful outcome. So you know, getting back to your question, technical founder with a non-technical co-founder, kind of decide who's going to be the CEO. And that tends to be like a loaded discussion of like, who's the boss of the other. And I don't think it necessarily has to be like that. But there is a discussion of as CEO, you are context switching, you are talking to investors, you are hiring, you are promoting the company. If you are the CEO, you cannot be in a deep work state all the time. And, you know, if deep work makes you happy, you should continue to do that and find ways in your career to focus on that. But you shouldn't be the CEO of a company, because you're going to have to context switch to carry out your job as the CEO. As the CTO, I think you have a little bit more flexibility. There are CTOs who are taking on more of a management position where eventually they stop coding and are just working on design. But then there are also CTOs who take on more of the architect hat and their job is to be kind of the top developer who helps make decisions about architecture and things. With that, think about your business and just where it succeeds long-term. If you're selling a developer tool, maybe the CTO should be someone who takes on more of that architect hat and is really close to the execution. But if it's maybe an enterprise sales tool or something like that, maybe the business needs you to be on the phone with customers and helping them get integrated with the product. But no matter what, as a founder, you need to be open to the fact that context switching is going to happen and that you need to embrace it and at least put aside some time for it. And then as a CTO, technical founder working with someone else who's going to be CEO, you need to be thinking about 
do I want to keep coding? Do I want to be a manager of people? Or do I want to be working on code? And so, you know, as you talk about this context switching, what I've seen in your career, you've gone from developer to founder to founder again to a baby founder during COVID. Um, but then, you know, now, as you are now a VP of engineering, what do you think has been, gosh, I mean, just even, I don't know how many years, if it's five years or so, like what has this context switching been like as, again, dev founder and again, a VP of, of devs, perhaps? Like what's the lesson learned there? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the big lessons when you're starting a company is if you have too much work, don't just work 100 hours per week and burn out. It's take a step back when things are not going well and think of it as a system, rebuild the system. Can we change scope? Can we change time? Can we change the composition of the team? And that's really what management entails in like a larger company is you're typically not going to help the company most by jumping in and writing code. At some point, you need to be doing one-on-ones, Understanding, is someone happy in their role? Do they want to be continuing to grow in their career? Are they kind of like happy just working on what they're working on? Other problems like with compensation or at home that are preventing them from doing their best work? A lot of that just is, you know, a founder hat. And the core of that is really, it all focuses on output, not really on activity. That's one of the biggest things you learn as a founder is no one's checking whether you're working 20 hours per week or 40 hours per week or 80 hours per week you're just being judged on the output. And so that is really what good leadership and management has to embrace. That it doesn't matter whether you're doing 10 hours of video calls per week, 40 hours of video calls per week, all that matters is the output of the team. So you constantly need to be challenging yourselves and thinking about the output. And that is really what that founder hat happens, right? Like as a leader in a company, you have to be asking hard questions, having hard conversations. You need to hire people. You need to fire people. You need to tell your person you report to when you think they're wrong, because it doesn't matter who's right in a lot of these scenarios. It just matters getting it right. And if you identify a problem that's going to affect the company in three months, you need to address it ASAP and not just say, I told you so in three months. A lot of those lessons just come from being a founder that you're not judged on your day-to-day activity. Investors, if you raise money, are not sitting in your office watching how many hours you're working. It's all about, is it working or is it not? Right. And so as you have also learned from your experience of transitioning from dev to founder, I think what is also, I should say, the lesson that you've learned in terms of being a successful serial founder, serial entrepreneur, right? Being able to, as a technical founder, also navigate the fundraising process, navigating the acquisition process. I think that that's usually a huge question mark when it comes to technical founders. It maybe sometimes it doesn't come as naturally. And so, you know, as an example, when you're a founder and you're planning your exits, it's like, do you find strategic partners that make sense for your, for your two companies to come together or do they come to you or what has that process been like? Yeah. A big part of this is Do you enjoy the day-to-day of being a founder or do you just like the idea of having sold a company and having been successful? And a lot of people start a first company and don't start a second company. And mathematically, you're going to likely fail with that first company. And that's, you know, kind of the nature of high growth startups. That's the venture model, the portfolio theory. And so if you go on and start a second company, that's typically because you really liked not being paid a lot, constantly having to fight to keep enough money in the bank, constantly having to firefight and address problems. And that's definitely a piece of advice for people here is every time you raise money, you're kind of going double or nothing. As a founder, 
you can't get into it for the money. Like you'll just make more money more stably. You have to be risk tolerant to be a founder. And if you are risk intolerant, if you are really worried about your 401k performance in a given year, like that's okay. But being a founder is going to be challenging for you because there are going to be times where you have to take money out of your own paycheck to make sure the team meets payroll. And first time starting a company took went down to minimum wage basically in California when we got a small <laughs> grant from Y Combinator. It sounds like a lot of money to say, oh, we got $10,000 grant from Y Combinator. But then, you know, you start paying bills, you start paying software and things like that. And it really doesn't last that long. So to want to continue working on companies and starting companies, you really have to enjoy the process. And I did. I just love the ability to be a generalist. Like you're not a specialist. You're not just, I'm not the best coder in the world. I'm not the best manager in the world. I'm definitely not the best accountant in the world. But you have to do all those things as a founder. And it's a lot of fun if you embrace it. So if you're going to start a company or if you're going to start a second company, it's really a sign that you're embracing the process, not just the outcome. And I think a lot of people who are enjoying the process and emerging happy and successful tend to be people who embrace the process because it's really an eight to 10 year journey from starting a company. And to make it eight to 10 years, burnout happens, co-founder conflict happens. Like there are a lot of reasons companies fail that are due to founders not wanting to go for 10 years at what they're doing. And that's really important to keep in mind when you're starting a company. hundred percent. And I would say that I think part of it is also just having that, that creative process, understanding what kind of developer you are, what kind of founder you are, right? And you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that, you know, sometimes founders, as glorious as they are, they're also the new starving artists in a way. And, and gosh, it, it's a common conversation that I hear a lot in the journey of, do I want to become, let's say, a principal engineer at Google or et cetera, because you you got the salary and this kind of, or should I go the founder route? I mean, they're, they're super different. I completely agree with you. And I'm sure you don't ever stop building because building is just fun, right? I think that even as a developer, like whatever we're building, it's just creative, even if it's a, a video game or something that you're not trying to commoditize. So is there a current project that you're working on? And if not, maybe tell me a little bit more about your work and what's next. So when COVID started, I bought wine from like a local restaurant that was trying to sell all the things in its cellars because they prepaid for all this wine and wanted to, you know, get some cash in the bank. And I got inspired by that and started a little website to help find local seller sales. And then it turned out that Uber Eats and DoorDash were taking a huge cut of delivery orders and kind of morphed into you know, go do takeout, the restaurant keeps more of the money. And that got purchased and continues today as something called Takeout COVID. That was kind of what I was working on at the beginning of COVID. And that, that was fun because that could have been a big project, right? Like that could have taken months and months to build and perfect, perfect the architecture and things. But it was timely, like to be effective, it had to get out right away. So I built it in like a day or two. And I think as a developer, just sometimes imposing those time restrictions of like, startup weekend or a hackathon or something is super empowering because you don't want to ask people to do the same work in less time as a manager. But a great question to ask is, if we change this to be a week or a day, how would we do it? And that's where some really great creativity happens. So I think it's always fun for developers to have different projects. But sometimes just try to think to yourself, if I only had a weekend to build this, how would I do it? So I could launch it on Monday. That's where no code tools and things like that can be really helpful or using frameworks. That also really brings back the idea of you don't have to over-optimize the database or the choice of programming language. Use what you know and just get to work. 
besides that, I've been doing a little bit of writing on a blog I started called Tinker. Tinker.fyi is the website. I'm working on a big post right now sharing Moonlight's pitch deck that raised its seed round. So that should be online probably by the time this episode comes out. So go check that out at tinker.fyi. Besides that, working super hard at Zyper. We're growing the team, we're hiring, and really helping brands connect with their fans. I got really inspired to join this company because they're kind of at this inflection point of having some early customers who really love the product. It's such a big opportunity to grow the product and the sales and everything. So I joined and I'm really excited to be there. It's been great to kind of join a broader team. After having worked on like smaller startup teams for so many years, there's definitely something positive and empowering about working with a group of people again. That was something I missed from OpenDNS. The people you work with are like a social circle. Working with a broader group of people has been really fun, especially when everyone is in lockdown and really (laughs) wanting to just, you know, have more contact with people. Yeah. Wow. Well, Philip, thank you so much. I mean, I think it's following your journey has definitely brought a smile to my face. (laughs) And it's, it's, I was going to say a smile to my mouth, which is, Huh, which is a bit more. I wasn't going to question but, it. But. Yeah, I, I'm questioning myself. So <laughs> I think with that being said, I mean, I think you're working on really, really fun projects. And I definitely want to, I'm going to definitely going to check out the Tinker site. So curious to see how that goes. But I really appreciate you joining us today. I'd love to hit you up again. And I hope that others who find this interesting can also reach out to you, you know? Yeah, so, definitely. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for having me on. Great to catch up after all this time. I know it's been a while. I completely agree. Thank you so much, Philip. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. My name is Sydney Lai. You are listening to Decoded. And I'm really excited that we were able to have that conversation with Philip. I think there is just a lot to think about when we explore our journey as a developer. Do we go down the path of a manager? Do we go down the path of a founder, right? Being a technical founder, building your own project, whatever it is, I think at the very least, I've learned a lot from the speaker today, and I hope you did too. Feel free to subscribe because it really helps us out as a young channel and it reaches a bigger audience that is similar to you guys, right? Like I said, tons of gratitude. I really enjoy hanging out with you guys. Feel free to join us next week, all right? And I think with that being said, if you have any questions, if you have any speakers that you would recommend, definitely reach out to me on Twitter. I'll hook you up. It'll be awesome. Thanks so much, you guys. Take care.